Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And the word of the Lord says, And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So as we come to our passage this morning, let us remember that we are still in Passion Week. This is Christ's last week in Jerusalem before he is going to be condemned on the cross. And we left off last looking at an encounter or this exchange between Christ and some Pharisees and Herodians. If you remember, they were attempting to fool Christ. They came to him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And here we have another attempt to fool Christ, this time from a different group, this time with a different question. This time it is the Sadducees who come to test Christ. Now, we've mentioned the Sadducees before. They were one of the two groups, the other being the Pharisees, who dominated Judaism in the first century. Now, both parties considered themselves the religious leaders of the Jews, but yeah, they were quite different in their beliefs. The Pharisees attempted or accepted, I'm sorry, the, the writings of the Torah. They also accepted the writings of the prophets. They also accepted the oral traditions, all of these as being inspired by God. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, only accepted the written Torah as being inspired by God. The Torah being the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not. In fact, the Sadducees denied many things like angels and demons and the afterlife. They believed there wasn't enough evidence in the Torah to affirm such things. They believed that after death, the soul and the body both perished. There was nothing else. There was no afterlife. There was no judgment. There was no resurrection. And there are still many Jews today who hold to this belief. This is partly because the Old Testament doesn't seem to give us a comprehensive doctrine of the resurrection. I mean, we can point to a few passages here and there, but it is not as robust as what we find in the New Testament. The question they present to Christ is one that pertains to Leverite marriage. It was part of the Levitical law given to them in the Torah, a law that the Jews living at this time in the first century were still required to keep. Now, let me read to you where we find this at. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. Let me briefly read. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of, her, of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was the scenario that was being brought to Christ. If this happens and a wife takes on multiple brothers as her husband, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? But, of course, just like the question brought to Christ by the Pharisees and the Herodians, this question wasn't sincere. Remember, these Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. This wasn't an honest attempt to gain clarity. But as with the other questions, Christ is not fooled. He begins to tell them how much they were wrong about the scriptures and the power of God. He says that in the resurrection, we neither, we neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels. In other words, the resurrection is not a continuation. The resurrection is not a return. It is not mere sameness. The resurrection is entirely something else. He then reminds them of the encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. God did not introduce himself as someone who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, but as someone who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing them how wrong they were about what happens after we die. We don't just go to the grave and cease to exist. God did not proclaim to Moses that he was a God of a now dead Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he said he is a God of a living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As he says, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living I titled this sermon, Believe in the Resurrection, and I want us to look at a couple of things that our passage shows us about the resurrection. What we will see is that in their attempts to fool Christ, the Sadducees are shown some important lessons about the truth that is the resurrection. So let us look at it together. What does our passage show us about the resurrection? Number one, our passage shows us that the resurrection is hopeless for the unbeliever. Look again at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians before them, the Sadducees came to Christ attempting to fool him. Their attempt was to disgrace him. Their attempt was to disgrace everything he taught. They thought they were pretty clever. Hey, let us propose this question to show how silly it is to believe in a resurrection. I mean... Look how foolish it is to believe in such a thing. Let us present this scenario to expose how ridiculous it is to believe in someone rising from the dead. Yet the Sadducees really had nothing to prove. I mean, everyone knew where they stood. Everyone knew that they didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, I'm sure they had countless of debates with the Pharisees and with some other Jews on the validity of the resurrection of the dead. See, in their mind, the debate was settled. They weren't trying to get Christ to change his mind. They weren't trying to persuade him. They weren't trying to get him to, uh, or, or get him to persuade them, to talk them into believing in the resurrection. I mean, their mind was made up. They weren't trying to get him to change their mind. Neither was this an attempt to persuade Christ, vice versa. 
In fact, they didn't really care what Christ believed. Didn't make any difference to them whether or not Jesus believed in a resurrection. The question had nothing to do with them trying to get Christ to change his mind. The question had nothing to do with trying to persuade Jesus on the resurrection. Then you ask, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of the question? If the purpose of the question wasn't trying to disprove the resurrection by its foolishness, then why was the question even asked? See, the Sadducees weren't trying to disprove the resurrection to Christ, nor were they trying to disprove the resurrection to the people around them. Again, the question had nothing to do with the resurrection. The question had everything to do with Christ. The question was an attempt to disprove anything but this man who they viewed as a threat to their status. What the Sadducees proclaimed wasn't unbelief in the resurrection. What they proclaimed was unbelief in Jesus Christ. It was to discredit his teachings. It was to discredit everything that he claimed to be. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and neither did they believe in Christ. And because of their disbelief in the latter, they share no hope in the former. For the unbeliever, the resurrection offers no hope. There was no hope for the Sadducees in Jesus' day, and there is neither any hope for the unbeliever today. Those that don't believe in Christ share no part of Christ and thus share no part of his resurrection. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3, we read this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of, this, of these, the, wor the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter here is speaking of a time when people will scoff at the idea of Christ's return. He says, in the last day, you ask, when are the last days? Well, the last days are the time between Christ's first return and his last return. In other words, it is the time that we are living in today. And in these last days, people will scoff. Why do they scoff? They scoff because they do not believe. They scoff because they think it's foolish to believe in such a thing. It's foolish to believe that this Bible is true. I mean, look at all the absurd things that it has to say. I mean, look at uh, some of the foolish things that are written in it. Was there a man named Jesus that roamed the earth years ago? Maybe so. But you mean to tell me that you believe that this man rose from the dead? You don't believe that, do you? Again, why, why, do they, why, they, why don't they believe? Why do they scoff? Peter tells us. It's because of their own sinful desires. It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because some things are just too absurd or sound too absurd or sound too hard to believe. See, that's the big misconception. We assume that people don't believe because of the lack of evidence. And look, I have nothing against classical apologetics. I think there's a place and there's a time to present facts and there's a, a place and a time to present evidence and show things to people that might help them believe. I, I believe that God can and does use such things. But the truth is, 
the reason people don't believe has nothing to do with evidence. It has everything to do with their sinful desires. It's because they are walking in darkness, blinded by their own sin. You know, it's in vogue these days, something that has become trendy. It's something called deconstructing your faith. You may have heard of this. So many people are coming out saying that they are leaving the faith and they are reexamining everything that they believed in. They say that they are now questioning everything they were taught and have now come to see the truth that everything that they once believed in was a lie. And you're starting to see this everywhere. You're starting to see this on social media. You're starting to see this in pop culture. Just this week, Kevin Max, a member of DC Talk, which was historically one of the most popular Christian rock bands, announced that he now considers himself an ex-evangelical, meaning he no longer wants to be identified as an evangelical Christian. And let me read you a quote of his. He says this, and I quote, I've been deconstructing for decades. I've always been progressing, as you can say, and then sometimes I regress. But I think where I'm at right now is I've really gone on a journey to find out what I truly believe in by reading a lot and thinking a lot, keeping my eyes open and my ears open. He adds, I've always been a believer, but I'm questioning a lot of things, and I've got more questions than answers. There are many of these types. I can go on and on listing names of people you may have heard of, people you might know. The movement of deconstructing your faith is starting to gain more and more traction. And the reasons people give are all similar. The hypocrisy they saw growing up in the church, the political stances that their parents took, uh, abuses that they saw firsthand, the list of rules that the church gives you, the heavy hand of the Christian faith, and so forth. And look, there's no excuse for any abuses. There's no excuse for any hypocrisies or anything wicked that the church does. People that do such things are going to have to answer to God for these things. But the truth is, none of that is the reason people are deconstructing their faith. The reason has nothing to do with the church's hypocrisy or their parents' politics or their questioning of science or their untrust in the reliability of scriptures. The reason people abandon the faith is not because of the sin in others. It is because of the sin in themselves. As Peter says, they are following their own sinful desires. Go ahead and blame others if you like. Go ahead and say the reason that you don't believe is because of this issue or that issue. Those reasons won't hold up in God's courtroom. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, you will not be giving an account for what someone else did with Christ. You will give an account for what you did with Christ. Did you believe? Did you put your trust in him for salvation? 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, we shouldn't be surprised that people are abandoning the faith. Neither should we be surprised that people refuse to believe. Scripture told us it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It was happening in the first century. It's continuing to happen today. As Paul says, this is the work of Satan. He is continuing to deceive. He is continuing to blind the eyes of those who are perishing. Why? 
because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Rather than believe the truth, they believe what is false, and for that they will be condemned. They are condemned because they do not believe the truth, but as Scripture says, take pleasure in unrighteousness. This was the error of the Sadducees. The truth in question wasn't the resurrection. The truth in question was Christ. As he says, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the Sadducees wanted no part of that. They wanted no part of the Son, and in their disbelief, they wanted no part of the Father. And for that, neither the Father or the Son would want any part of them. It doesn't matter whether or not there is a resurrection. The fact that you don't believe in Christ makes that a moot point. For even if you did believe in a resurrection, your disbelief in Jesus Christ offers you no hope in it. What a sad state to be in. You know, we see this a lot. You probably see it in social media. When someone dies, a loved one of someone dies, you'll often hear or see posts like this that say, until we meet again, or I can't wait to see you in heaven. There's this hope that one day people will see their loved one again. But friend, without Christ, there is no hope. Your only hope in seeing your loved one again is by placing your hope in Jesus Christ. You must turn to Christ. You must believe in Christ. The truth is, your desire to see Christ must exceed your desire to see your dead loved one. Because then and only then will you find hope in what the resurrection brings. Do not look to the resurrection to find hope. Look to Christ to find hope in the resurrection. Because without Christ, there is no hope. The Sadducees were hopeless. And so too are unbelievers today. The first thing about the resurrection we see is that the resurrection is hopeless for the unbeliever. Let us go on. We also see that the resurrection is the hope for the believer. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. After their attempt to fool Christ with this absurd scenario, Christ starts to correct their thinking. He says, look, you are wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. And before we gloss over that, think about what Christ is saying. He is saying that these men who have given their entire lives to studying the scriptures, have no clue what the scriptures are saying. You Sadducees, who have spent your whole life studying the scriptures, trying to get to know God, don't know him, and don't know his power. Again, the the common misconception of their day was that the resurrection was just a continuation of this life. That it was just a return to the life that you once enjoyed here on earth. But Christ is saying, no, the resurrection is not that. The resurrection is so much more. The resurrection is not a return to the same, but a departure to another, a greater kingdom, a glorified body. The old will be made new. The corruptible will put on the incorruptible, just like the angels in heaven. So while the unbeliever has no hope in the resurrection, the believer has hope in the resurrection. The believer can anticipate and look forward to a day when they will be like the angels. You say, what good is that? What advantage is that? 
What advantage do the angels have? The angels are with God. We will be with God forever. We look forward to a day when we will not have to deal with the effects of our fallenness, suffering, pain, disappointment, stress, anxiety, fear, doubt. All of these things will one day be wiped away. We will be transformed from the image of a fallen man to the image of a risen man. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those that are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What glorious news. What a reason to have hope. We who believe, we who are believers are assured that we will one day no longer carry the burden of that first man. We will not no, no longer carry the burden of Adam, but we will receive the rest of Christ. Everything that burdens, burdens us here on earth is due to our fallen nature, is due to our fallenness in Adam. Just consider everything. Consider the evils of this world. Think of all the murder and, and the theft and the abuse and the disease and the atrocities. I mean, we can go on and on. Think of these things that happen every single day. These are the effects of living in a fallen world as fallen man playing by the rules of a God of this world, which is Satan. Men and women of the dust live with the effects of sin. What does that mean? That means that we get everything that comes with sin. But men of women of heaven get everything that comes with heaven. And you know what that means? That means we get God. That means we get to live with God. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. Revelation speaks of a day when we will be able to call things like death, and mourning, and crying, and pain, former things. Meaning, things that used to be, things that are no more, things that are in the past, things that are our history. Because in the resurrection, those things will be no more. And notice the first of these that are listed is death. Death will be no more. That's what I'm looking forward to. A day when I don't have to hear about someone dying a day when I won't have to mourn or hear about someone mourning the loss of their loved one. Anyone in this room who's ever dealt with death knows what kind of enemy it is, right? It is a formidable foe. Death is no respecter of persons. It doesn't play fair. It has no remorse. It takes and it takes and it never gives. It, it never looks back. Many of us have seen it firsthand. 
We've been there watching it as it has taken away our loved ones, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Death doesn't care. It takes pleasure either way. It arrives unannounced, and when it arrives, it comes to claim victory. We know it. We've seen it. We've witnessed its horror. Death is heartless. Death is merciless. Death is cruel. Death will look you in your eye and tell you that there is nothing you can do. It takes pleasure in your sorrow. And it will always remind you that one day it's going to visit you. What an enemy. An enemy that no man born of dust is a match for. This enemy rules the dust. The dust is this enemy's home. A man of dust is no match for an enemy that can swallow him up in dust. Here we need help from the heavenly. Here we need help from above. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Let the hearer understand. Death and everything that comes with it, everything that death brings, will be crushed by the resurrection. One day, this death that has troubled us and has hounded us and has beaten us and has mocked us will be swallowed up in victory. We will no longer be the mocked. We will now be the mocker. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? This is the hope of the believer. This is the hope of those that are in Christ. Since Christ has conquered death, we too will conquer death. Since Christ has risen, we too will rise. Since Christ dwells in the heavenlies, we too will dwell in the heavenlies. We will share in the fellowship of Christ and the glory of Christ and the riches of Christ with the people of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we read this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, the Sadducees had it all wrong. Not only were they wrong about there not being a resurrection, they were wrong about what the resurrection was all about. It was not a continuation of this life. It was a transfer to a greater life where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more death, where there will be no more suffering. A second thing about our passage shows us that the resurrection is the hope for the believer. And lastly, what else do we see? We see that the resurrection is assurance for the living. It is assurance for the living. Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Christ continues to show the Sadducees how wrong their thinking was. But even more, he wanted to show others how wrong their thinking was. 
The resurrection is not something to lay hold of in the future. The resurrection is something you can lay hold of today. A believer alive on this earth and a believer that is in the presence of the Lord both possess the same thing. They both possess the assurance of the resurrection. They both are assured that one day we will be given a glorified body. That one day we will be able to be with God in his dwelling place forever. If you are a believer, eternal life does not start the day you die. It starts the day you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Amen. A man who lives with the possession of eternal life need not ever fear death. Death can taunt us. Death can try and make us fear it. But the truth is, death is a defeated foe. To put it another way, death is a dead man walking. Its days are numbered. But again, this hope and this assurance is only for the believer. It is only for those who believe in the resurrection. And you ask, how do I believe in the resurrection? My friend, you start by believing in Christ. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they did not believe in Christ. They came to Christ that day with an absurd scenario. They're trying to trick him, trick him with a foolish and silly question. They're trying to make a mockery out of Christ. But the following Sunday, Christ would make a mockery out of them. The Sadducees came to Christ presenting him a foolish question about the resurrection. On the following Sunday, Christ is about to present them with an empty tomb. He not only told them how wrong they were, he was about to show them how wrong they were. In just a few days, on Resurrection Sunday, they would not only question everything they thought about the resurrection, they were about to question everything they thought about this man, Christ. You say you don't believe in the resurrection? You say that you don't believe in me? In a couple of days, I'm about to show you how wrong you are on both accounts. The lesson to the Sadducees is the same for us today. You must believe in the resurrection. If you were to have any hope in this life or in this death, my friend, you must believe in the resurrection. And to do so, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Let us stand up and pray.